Greetings and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. That is 95.7 in Ottawa and 106.5 in Toronto. Today on the show, we have our Ottawa journalist, Caroline O'Neill, who is sitting down with Marc Bourrier and speaking about his RBC Taylor-nominated book, Bushrunner. Now, he details the adventures, life, and times of Pierre Esprit Radisson, who had a relationship with Indigenous peoples that wasn't typical of the time. So let's listen to that. Bushrunner chronicles Pierre Esprit Radisson's adventures. And you mention in the book that his name is everywhere, but his story isn't necessarily everywhere. So what brought a story to you? I looked it up in like 2004, 2005 for something. I don't even know why. And I was reading whatever I... I don't know whether it was Wikipedia or whether it was in an actual uh, encyclopedia, but I started reading through and I went, whoa, <laughs> this guy's, you know, all of the things that are, that are the major parts of his life are sort of encyclopedias, but, and, and those in themselves put together this skeleton of a, of a life that was like, I can't believe this guy was in this place and this place and here for that and here for that and met this person. So I thought, well, this is a great, person to hang a lot of things on not like guilt or anything but um though we can go there and i put together a proposal now i was um doing my doctorate at that point so i had access to university archives so i just basically downloaded everything i could find academic papers and everything and i and i then i went and printed all the stuff for free somewhere and put it into a big white binder and made a an outline and gave it to my book editor and nobody wanted it. So I forgot about it for like 13 years. So what eventually brought you back to this point where we are now? My my editor uh, brought it up and said, do you th- think we should you know, consider this book? And I said, boy, it's a weird time in my life. But yeah, um, I had I, <laughs> I decided to go to law school. I have an awful lot of paper on the wall for, for somebody like me. But anyway, um, and I had written my major paper on Iroquois and property law. So I had like I had always been very interested in that period of history because of where I come from myself and uh, the people I've known through my life. So uh, so when I started writing about that area of property law, I had all this stuff written out, and I had read Conrad Black's book where he basically said, "There's no such thing." I'm, I'm whacking my fingers together as I said, "No such thing as the First Nation. No such thing as as governments in First Nations. No such thing as law." I'm like, "No, no, that's just just false." So I'd done this, I had done this paper, which I'm still sort of tweaking, and I thought, Radisson, well, he's, he's there. I can explain this area of, of I want to I tell the story that these, that these are nations. First Nations are nations. That's, that's like one of the major points of this book. And I thought, okay, well, it's going to be a big disruption in my life to do this book now, but I'm going to do it just because I want to tell that. And then I also want to tell this bizarro story about this whacked out life. And then in looking to tell that story, one of the things that you also start to develop is this relationship to Indigenous peoples that is really unlike what relationships were depicted of in that time frame. Yeah, totally. And I, I had, at one point years ago, I had thought about writing a book about Jean de Brebeuf, who's a missionary. Brebeuf is completely opposite to Radisson because he wants to change the Indigenous people. He wants to impose French government on them. He wants to impose fr- French religion on them and make them, make the, especially the Huron, the Wendat of Southern Georgia Bay into French people. Radisson is completely the opposite. And as I'm reading through his stuff, I'm realizing that, that this guy is actually, for somebody who's a total rogue and an absolute scoundrel, has got it right about Indigenous people. And 
He's the only person. So I, I could go through a list of all of the, the the European writers of that period whose works I'd read, and I hadn't read all of Radisson. But as I'm reading his own accounts, and thank God he could write, um, he's the only person who who really likes indigenous people. I'd say like, you know, you can just scrape out all the other stuff, all the academic stuff. See, he actually liked. He, he 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 tried to become as indigenous as he could. The one writer did write about uh, an academic writer about the Métisization of Pierre Radisson, which is kind of a weird term and maybe not a good fit. But he he is adopted by the uh, by the Mohawk. He does join a Cree clan and um, and he actually uses that in his business and stuff. He. Um, Learn languages really fast, so this is something I very much envy because I can't learn a language for the life of me, including English. And um, he uh, he he learns all of these n- different indigenous languages and language groups. So he learns um, Iroquois, he learns Sierra, which are two Iroquois languages that are fairly related. But he learns Cree, he learns Ojibwe, um, he learns some Sioux, and then he learns Dutch, English, <laughs> French, and those are the ones I know of. Um, and like within three, four months, it's it's an amazing mind, and um, and so he can connect in a way that a lot of the other writers of that period can't connect. Plus, he comes into it as a kid. He comes into it as this, as a as a what I can see as a very lonely, sort of pubescent boy who is adopted by a very loving Mohawk family, and he gets a lot of love that he didn't get back among his own people. So I think that's a really good starting point. If you're going to, you know, be, become part of a new culture, that's about as good a situation as you can get uh, from both sides. So I think that's one of the reasons he really kind of started to get them. The only reason I think that he left the Mohawk and didn't live the rest of his life with them was that someone scared him. A, a European trader scared him into thinking that if the French ever fought the Mohawk and he was captured, he would be, like, executed. And then he started to think and, you know, hem and haw, and then he finally just bolted. But he still kept connections with them. One of the things that you touch on in the book as well are other works that maybe wouldn't hold up today. So you talk about things like The Last of the Mohicans and the Orenda and how Mm -hmm. we look at them very differently now. So in doing your own work, what kind of pressure did you feel and what kind of different safeguards did you have to make sure that your own work was something that you, you could publish in 2020 and that would tell the story that you felt needed to be out here? I was thinking about, um, Black Robe and how everybody praised the book and everybody praised the movie and how appalling that story was and how much I hated it when it came out. And I think a lot of non-Indigenous writers tried to be woke. They tried to be like, uh, you know, pass themselves off as Indigenous even, which I do not do. And they... um, they have to force themselves. And I, I guess I just didn't. I just, you know, I just saw, I see people as people. And, um, and so I didn't, I didn't see that I had to turn indigenous people into some kind of non-human people. So that means like not, you know, degrading indigenous people like so many writers have, and not infantilizing them. You know, that, that indigenous people are somehow dense. And the one thing in the book, like when you read my book, you're not reading about bush hippies. You're not reading about people who are being co-opted by, say, New Age movements and, you know, crystal healers and stuff. Um, These are sophisticated intellects. 
the, the, the indigenous leaders and the indigenous people, um, they are they are not fools about what's happening around them. And it's like the indigenous people that I know, indigenous people I went to law school with, um, who are exactly the same. If I need to remind myself that indigenous people work hard, have strategies, uh, like to succeed, I can just go to Tyndanaga, uh, where anybody who's been down to Tyndanaga, I'm speaking from the Ottawa point of view, will see an incredible amount of commerce that's been going on um, it, with a very strong people saying, we will do what we want. And that may be uh, we running a tax-free zone or running a pot shop long before they're quote-unquote legalized, got some air quotes going here, um, and, and being incredibly entrepreneurial and coming up with really smart ideas. And you see that in indigenous leadership across the country. And I think it's uh, Radisson saw it, and he just lived among people and said, "Well, I have this, and you have that, and we'll do it." Now, Radisson is at a, at a time before anybody wants to take indigenous land, and that's a really important part of the story. Is that this book is in this weird period between contact and when the epidemics have gone through, which are brought over by by people and by their farm animals and by children. European children did a lot to, you know, I mean, very accidentally, but um, to bring all these diseases over. So these diseases have gone through. And in their wake has been incredible social disruption. A lot of elders have, have died. Uh, a lot of people in general have died. There's this mourning, the devastation, that sort of post-plague. Um, and then a whole bunch of political ramifications and economic ramifications of that. Radisson gets plunked down in there. So he's there when that's going on and, and that's being worked out. But before settlers are coming in to clear land and take land and, and get Native people to see land. Because at that point, European countries themselves, and this is another part of the book that people are going to kind of shake their heads at, European countries themselves were just as messed up as as the indigenous world in, in Eastern North America. and Western North America, there had been very little sort of fallout from contact at that point. But... Europe had just come through basically the equivalent of a world war. And the the people that we think of, like when you read about Radisson, he knew Prince Rupert. Well, you read about Prince Rupert, you think, oh, wow, this is a prince. Well, this guy was, had been a pirate 10 years before. Um, there's all kinds of flux going on. And Radisson lives in this world of, of, of political and economic mayhem. And that story really hadn't been told. And I really enjoyed telling it that way. Did you consult with any indigenous groups or any indigenous scholars when you were writing this book? Uh, not too many. I had I had uh, done a lot of, of conversations with uh, an indigenous scholar in the in the nineties and the early two thousands, but n- not about this book per se. And I didn't want to draw people into this either as potential censors or as people who would wear any blame that would come from it. Um, but uh, because I didn't want to do that for those reasons, I also left things out of the book that might be um, sensitive to cultural um, elements that I may not understand as a non-Indigenous person. So like I left out the names of Radisson's um, adopted parents. I left out some of the religious and cultural um, stuff, the spirituality, because I 
I didn't feel that I was able to address it and it wasn't, he wasn't really understanding it anyway. And so, so I, I made sure that I told the story through his eyes rather than tell his story through the eyes of indigenous people. Now there's times when there isn't, when, when, when there are indigenous judgments about Radisson that are made um, and, and they do come through, but I don't, I, I was very, very aware of the potential to fall into appropriation or even um, putting myself out there too much as a, a sort of an advocate and saying, okay, well, this is this is what he saw and this is how he saw it. And it's always, well, as, as much as I can do, um, his story. And... But but to understand his story in a way that it hadn't been told before, like, the way his story had been told was Pierre Radisson is out duck hunting when he's 15 and he's grabbed by these these men, these scary men, and he's dragged back to the Mohawk country where he is held as a captive for two years and escapes. And I go, whoa, wait a minute. That's Almost none of that is true in the, in the, in the uh, emotion of that. Yes, he is taken captive from a crappy situation that he's in. He's cooking for these guys on day two. He's paddling with them on day three, you know, working working his little bum off, going, heading down to the Iroquois country. He is, like, treated like a little god all the time he's there. He's adopted by, like, some of the most the richest, power, most powerful family in the community who can actually save him his life when he commits murder which he does, and it's not war murder. This is straight-up homicide. Um, he uh, he is, is, is missed when he finally escapes. Like, this is not a captive story in the sense that, that our uh, media and, and our education portrays capture at all, and I wanted to tell that story. And, you know, you say you tell the story through Radisson's eyes, but one of the things that you mention is that Radisson himself can be an unreliable narrator. So this seems like a real challenge. An unreliable narrator is one of my favorite devices in fiction, but in nonfiction, how do you how do you go about handling that? I got to know him so well that I could tell when he was lying. Um, and that's, I know it sounds weird and, and it'll sound like, maybe it's like hooey, but when he tells the truth, all of his stuff is very detailed. And when he lies, it the lies are very short. So like he'll talk about trips, like they're, one of the great lies of Radisson was he lies in, in his writings and says he made two trips out west, and he only made one. Um, and out west is basically to the end of Lake Superior, or maybe as far as the Mississippi River. And I can tell he's lying because when he talks about going up the Ottawa River, he gets almost boring. Like, we went by this waterfall. Then we went by this thing, and, and there are these rocks, like these islands are weird. And then we, he talks about walking behind the Rideau Falls in Ottawa and and sees these weird islands above the Shadier, and he he sees like a, a religious observance at the Shadier Falls, and on and on and on, almost like day by day. Then he gets up to Lake Superior, and he says, "You know, I went by this beautiful beach, and he he just loved pretty places. This beautiful beach, and then this place with a cave on the side of the cliff, and yada yada, and you and you could follow along right where he went. But when he's lying, he says, "Well, I went down uh, down uh, to the countryside of the Huron." Where all of, uh, along the rocky shore, I could see their villages from the water. A, where the Huron lived, there's like, it's all sand beach. It's not rock. And B, you can't see where their villages were from the water because they built inland back in the woods to keep out of the wind. So I have 
been around almost all the places he claimed to go. And I can, yeah, I can tell when he's not telling the truth, and I can tell when he's telling the truth about where he travels. Now, with the indigenous people, it's clear, uh, like with his trip to the Iroquois, that that was true because he's telling. There's 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 corroborating stuff about like the family that that he's with, and the leadership that he sees. Um, there's a mixed race uh, Dutch um, Mohawk leader, war, war leader, um, who he talks about a fair amount and who scares him very much and who we know exists um, or existed. And um, we know about the famine, certainly the, the situation where he's in, in Lake Superior where he, and then that's kind of a neat thing too is because he, he you know, it contrasts with his life among the settled prosperous Iroquois. The second, his trip out west, he's with people who are refugees, refugees from, 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 um, from these um, epidemics and from the wars that are caused by them uh, and the disruption caused by trade. And, and they're like Huron, um, Peyton, they're basically what, Wyandots or Wendats. Uh, there's some Cree, there's some Ojibwe, and they're not quite refugees, but they're in bad straits, Menominee. And we know that the things that he said happened, happened like the famine of that year. We know that they did a Feast of the Dead, um, which is, uh, I talk about him seeing a Feast of the Dead in the book, which was something that was new to the, the people of Lake Superior, and, and they only did it for a short time. And there's you know, academic work and archaeological work and other, you know, people had seen it too and talked about it. Um, so, yeah, that's, so once once he's he's out of North America, um, he goes to Europe. Now there's all kinds of other stuff where he's not only an, an, um, an unreliable narrator sometimes, everybody who writes about him is unreliable. Winston Churchill wrote about him and got him wrong, said that he went to the English because he was a Protestant. Well, no. Um, Winston Churchill wrote about Radisson in a book about um, John Churchill, the Duke of Marlborough, who was one of the Hudson Bay Company founders, but was also Winston Churchill's ancestor. Um, the uh, uh, everybody writes about him going over to the uh, English because the French had charged him this big tax and whatnot, and that's just not true. And what was really true was that the Mohawk had taken over the fur trade routes that the French needed. Radisson couldn't get out west anymore, so he tried to do an end run. And what he was trying to do was basically um, cheat all his business partners by coming in the back door of the fur country through Hudson Bay. Um, Radisson was a, a map freak, and that was something that came out from my writings. I went, oh, my God. And I started looking at maps and seeing how he could make mistakes, like think that Lake Superior was really close to Lake here. Uh, to, he thought that Lake Superior and Hudson Bay were about maybe 100 miles from each other. So he tells a lie that he went to Hudson Bay and back. And it's just like, oh, yeah, then I went to Hudson Bay and I came back. I was like, well, buddy, if you had gone to Hudson Bay, A, you couldn't do it in two weeks from Lake Superior, and B, You'd be complaining about the bugs. You'd be talking about the giant rivers. You would be talking about like the change of the forest, how you had to go, you know, past these mountains around like like Lake Superior country. I'm thinking the mountains around Pace Platte, Rossport, Heron Bay, um, that are these flat top hills like the Sleeping Giant. He would have mentioned anything that's striking as that in Mount McKay. Doesn't mention any of it. And then I find this map and I see. <laughs> Hudson, James Bay practically touching Lake Superior, and I know that this map came out like three years before he made the trip. I'm like, well, that's it. That's why he thinks he could do it, like, you know. And at the end of the day, it was those wild tales that, as you said, have really allowed to create this challenge to the fact that there were nations here before and to the colonial historical narrative that often dominates 
Why did you want to challenge that? Well, I was appalled by by Black's book. Uh, I've always thought Black was an, another character who probably deserves a real biography, but that, that aside, because um, he's just as much of a scoundrel as Radisson, actually probably worse. And um, and when I saw that 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 he, that he had written that these nations did not exist, and I had read basically everything I've ever been able to get my hands on about the Wendat people, because that's where I grew up. I grew up in the southern Georgia Bay Area, and I used to walk across fields, and I could tell where the villages were by the black stains on the ground where the houses were, and um, and I knew this was false, and um, and I you know I I was training as a lawyer when I read that. And I, I knew in law that it was false, and um, and we think that that kind of garbage is not part of the discourse anymore, but it is, and it's maybe not you and I. Like I think you and I agree that First Nations are nations, but there are a lot of people out there who donate money and who vote and who post stuff on Twitter and Facebook who don't believe that, who believe the stuff of you know, of the black robe book, who believe the stuff that they see in movies, who um, who believe that indigenous people were poor. I mean, that's another myth I bust, is that the indigenous people were richer than the average Frenchman who, who visited them. Um, all of those things were like, uh, are, are out there, and there's there's only been the recent pushback to say, you know, this is, the reality's different from all of this stuff, and um, I've had. There's one. There, there are two. Uh, as of this moment, two reviews of my book on Amazon.com, and for one, for a while, there was only one, and this was one where this guy, I guess he bought the book, so I guess I get like two dollars and thirty cents off him. Uh, but he wrote that uh, that it was all just like politically correct nonsense, and then I guess he got as far as what I'm talking about. Um, about the crafts of the Iroquois, how beautiful their, you know, things like, like basically were like smoking pipes, how, how gorgeous they were. I guess he got about that far. So he's maybe got like about page 60. And uh, so he wrote, writes about me and talking about the pipes and, 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 I, and, and how gorgeous they were. And just this crappy thing, like one-star review. So if anybody's going to buy my book in the States, to see like a one-star review. And I'm thinking, you know, I guess it's pearls before swine. Like I, I tried, um, but there's, I know that guy's not alone. I know that like, like especially the farther west you go in this country, maybe starting around the Sioux, the more and more people really are, you know, they use um, what they see as uh, indigenous historical cultural inferiority and political inferiority as a reason, as an underlying foundation for racism. And I said, no, no, no. I'm not, you know, I had the opportunity to push back on that. I had choices that I could make in my life of what I was going to do with the time that I wrote that book. And when I was writing that book, I felt really good. I felt like I was I was putting out viral tweets as I wrote that book because I was, it's, it's out there now. And it's saying like, you know, we're not dealing with a different species of people. We're dealing with real people who are smart who are not stuck in any kind of, who are adaptive, who each indigenous culture is perfectly adapted to the environmental situation that that indigenous culture is in. And I don't think I've ever seen that written, and I wrote it, and I'm really proud of that. So, you know, so I, um, so when people talk about indigenous cultures, and I say, okay, well, if you were living in 
you know, the Southern Great Lakes region in 1500, you know, before, before contact, how would you make the best use of the land? The Iroquois people made the best use of that land with the numbers they had and the technology they had, um, the fact that you can't, they didn't have access to iron the way Europeans did, and that's a geological thing. It's not a, it's not a cultural thing. It's not an intellectual thing. And I got to say all that, and, I, and I, I'm really proud I did.